Good morning. For those who don't know me, my name's Kyle. I'm the pastor here at Emmanuel, and uh, I'm really looking forward to this next series uh, that we're going to be studying together as a church family. We're going to the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, over the next seven weeks, and we're going to be looking at seven sort of sub-letters within this bigger letter called Revelation, which was a series of pointed messages given to specific early churches to challenge them. Uh, and so what happens is Jesus is speaking to these churches directly and wants to give them sort of a series of promises and warnings that they need to adopt if they're going to either sort of keep going with him or depart from him. And this is really important within the theme of this whole book because Revelation is really a book about there being two teams. There's Team Jesus and Team Babylon. Babylon sort of meaning the culture that has departed away from God, that goes with the way of God's enemies. And so the whole book is sort of this series of uh, details that come in vision to the Apostle John to help the church be both challenged and encouraged, particularly John wants the church to be encouraged to stick with Team Jesus despite all that they would face. And ultimately the reason why is he says, Jesus wins. Jesus has actually already won because what he's done on the cross, but Jesus wins. So you need to stick with him through some of the difficulties that you will face. Jesus is going to win despite the challenges each one of these churches will face through their period of time. And then by extension, we are still struggling through these very same things today. It's amazing how history repeats itself. Over and over, we'll see that Jesus sort of warns the church against apathy, against walking away from its first love, against against idolatry. And while that was a warning a couple thousand years ago to these seven churches and those affiliated with them, where do we find ourselves today? In a lot of those same places. And so we'll see that these aren't just letters for seven churches back then, but they're actually messages for us to receive. So each week what we're going to do is we're going to come to our mailbox here and we're going to open it up and we're going to take out one of the letters. And so we're going to go through the seven churches that we see. This week we're going to look at the church of Ephesus, which is what we also read, the, the letter to the church of the Ephesians. That's the city of Ephesus. We're going to look at Smyrna. We're going to look at Pergamum. We're going to look at Thyatira. We're going to look at Sardis. Philadelphia, not the city, the church in the ancient times, and Laodicea. And we're going to see that while all of these are on Team Jesus, they maybe are to different degrees. They maybe have different problems within them. But we, for some reason, have adopted pretty much it all. And so we're going to take each one one by one and sort of unpack what does this have to say to us today? What can we today learn as the church so that we make sure we're receiving the promises that Jesus would have from those who are faithful and doing what they're called to? And how do we avoid 
the punishments that come or the consequences that come with the warnings that Jesus gives. And so we see up on the map here, all these churches are pretty close together. Uh, they're in Western Asia, and these are all influential churches to different degrees. Now, as we open each one of these letters, we're going to see that there's a similar structure that takes place. There's sort of the same five things that come up in every single letter. So if you're going to be reading along with us at home, which I'm hoping you're doing, I hope that you each week look in the newsletter, see what is being taught on on Sunday, and you read ahead. But as you do that, I'm hoping you'll be able to sort of see, okay, this is sort of how this letter takes place. And these letters are short. Um, they're not super long, so it's really easy to do, fit in in sort of like five minutes of your time to quickly read it. But take this sort of structure and sort of begin to see what is Jesus saying to this church in particular. And by extension, we can invite the Holy Spirit to say, what do you want to say to me as well as I look at this? So what is that structure? Well, the structure is really simple. At the beginning of each one of these letters, we're going to read this, and this is how you know you're in a new letter. It's going to say, to the angel of, and then city title here. So to the angel of this city. And so we see that Jesus speaks words to this figure who's to pass on this message to the church of the specific city. Now, we need to hold up right there, because as soon as we hear this word angel, a lot of our minds go a whole bunch of different ways. Either we're really comfortable with that conversation around angels, we have no idea what we think about angels, maybe we don't even know what this is really saying. And if you're going to study this at home, you're actually going to find that there's even a lot of great theologians who debate what this is all about. And as you do that, you're going to come to find that this word angel has multiple meanings. In fact, in this context, it actually has sort of three different uh, potential meetings. Now, I bring this up not to sort of distract us, but to let us know that this is taking place so that if we're studying, we're not like, oh, but Kyle said this, but someone else is saying this over there. This is a tricky subject that a lot of people wrestle with. And what I want you to know is that's okay that we're wrestling with this line because it's not sort of the heart and soul of what the letter is really about. But still, to sort of uh, help you along in your curiosity, let me give you sort of the three possibilities that this is saying. And then as we read this together, uh, I'd love for you to just sort of think about which one do I think this could be and why. And then maybe it's a great thing to have a conversation with, with family, friends, or within your community groups as you study uh, these letters. But here the word angel could refer to one of three things. It could re refer to what we picture when we think of a, an angel, which is a supernatural, heavenly being who has, for some reason, both a relationship with God and a relationship with this specific city. So in this case, as we read the church, uh, the letter to the church of Ephesus, there's some sort of angelic being who's been assigned to the city of Ephesus. Now, others might say, well, that might not be quite what they're saying because the word angel that we have in English comes from the Greek word angelos, which means messenger. And so maybe... Jesus gave this revelation to John, and John talked to his buddy who went to be a messenger to that specific city. 
Or perhaps what we have is the third option, that Jesus is sort of speaking to the spirit of the church or spirit of the city. I mean, we all know this. We all know that every church has sort of a unique flavor, right? Like we've all been to different churches and, you know, you might come to this church and it, it has a certain sort of vibe and culture and then you're going to go down the street to another amazing church and whether that's you're going to pop over to Northview or APA or Central Heights or Life Church and we've got all these great churches in our city but they all have sort of a different sort of feel and spirit. They have different emphases. And so what some people believe is this is Jesus speaking to sort of the heart of that church and how they're oriented. Now, I have my personal belief, which I'm not going to give to you because I want you to discuss this because it's an interesting topic, and I don't want you to just go, well, Kyle said, what I want you to do is wrestle with this. Take some time, read what it could mean, and see. But we'll see that every letter will start off that way. Then from there, what will happen is we'll jump into a section, maybe just a brief line, that tells us something about Jesus's character. If all these churches are on Team Jesus, they need to know about who Jesus is and what aspect of him and his life are really particularly important to them in that season. And so what we see is actually that as the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ opens in chapter 1, there's a big picture about who Jesus is. And then as each one of these letters is written, one of these characteristics is drawn from that first chapter and put in to specifically speak to each city's situation. And so what you'll be able to do as we go through these seven little letters is you'll be able to sort of reconstruct them into the picture that we have in Revelation chapter 1. So we've got sort of this angel message. We've got the who's sort of speaking and what is he like? Why should we be listening to a message from Jesus? And then the third part we have is sort of this shift into focusing on the church itself by Jesus saying, hey, congratulations, this is what you're doing well. So in each one of the cases, except for the city of Laodicea, because uh, it's a dumpster fire, uh, except to them, in every other case, Jesus says, this is what you're doing really well. And I want to affirm you for this. I want you to recognize I'm not just here to beat down on you and make you feel terrible. I want you to know that I actually am appreciating what you're doing here. And so each one of these churches will get this positive affirmation, except for the church in Laodicea. But after that, Jesus wants to begin to unearth sort of some of the problems that take place. And so he points out some of the noteworthy issues taking place in that church. And so we'll see in five of the seven letters, there's going to be this section of warning. This is where you're going wrong. Now, in, for two of the letters, to Smyrna and to Philadelphia, it's going to take on a different flavor. It's not that they're doing something wrong, but it's that they're facing a certain situation that's difficult. But in all the others, there's sort of something going wrong. And so Jesus is saying, these are noteworthy issues taking place, and you really need to pay attention to them and to be prepared to whether address it by doing something in a different direction or keep on going despite the fact 
that this issue is present in your midst. And so we have this positive affirmation, then this noteworthy issue that comes together, and then finally, Jesus will give some sort of promise or warning. He'll tell them about the the promises that they have if they keep going or if they change direction, or he'll tell them about what the potential consequence of ignoring what he would have to say to them would be. He doesn't want it to be ambiguous. Jesus has never wanted his people to sort of be walking around in the dark, not knowing what they should do. Jesus wants clarity, because clarity is kindness, right? And Jesus wants them to know how can we receive what he would have for us. And so as we go through each of these letters, we're going to see the same pattern. And then the question for us is, what could this have meant to them? And then what could it mean to our situation today? What could it mean to my heart posture? What could it mean as I interact with my church family who I gather with? And then we can wrestle with the Holy Spirit so that we can do what he's calling us to do or be who he's calling us to be so that we can receive all Jesus would have for us both as individuals and together as a church family. So with all that in mind, you're now prepared to read all these letters, but let's dive in this week to the church in Ephesus. So I'm just going to pray as we open this up. Uh, We're going to just invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us, and then we're going to read the letter. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you that you are gracious enough uh, to have given a vision to John, your friend, to have allowed him to pass on messages Uh, first to those first seven churches, and then by extension to us. Uh, Jesus, we want to be on your team. We want to receive what you would have for us. We want to uh, persevere through those things that that stand against you. And God, we want to know how to do that better, not because we want to be better people or because we want to be better than somebody else or some other church, but Lord, because we want to be like you because lord we are just so in love with you we are so amazed by who you are so holy spirit we thank you that you are with us and as we open these letters over the next few weeks but in particular uh this one to the church in ephesus lord we today we just ask that you'd speak clearly to our hearts and to our minds would you help the place we've done well in and the places we have gone wrong in and lord god uh would you just get all the glory by what happens today We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you got your Bible, you can look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 to 7, but I'm going to read it here in this letter. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. This is Jesus saying this. It says, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. 
You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So this is Jesus' message to the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was an incredible city in its time. It was sort of a world power center. There's a bit of a drawing up here, and you kind of catch a bit of the magnitude, if you can make it out, of sort of this grand city with lots going on. In some ways, we might picture it like the, the, the New York of Western Asia. It had sort of this huge financial sector within it. It was sort of the financial hub for all of Western Asia in its times. It had a, a massive port where ships will come and go. It had trade routes through the land to bring everything to sort of this economic hub that continued to build and build. But not only was it an economic center, it was also a cultural center and a, a, a religious one as well. You can sort of make out in the front there, there's that semicircle shape. And what that was, was an amphitheater that seated 24,000 people. And that was something that, that's hard to even see today in cities. I mean, you go to cities all over the place, they don't have a stadium that big. But this was in an ancient city, which would not have been huge by today's standards of cities. But still, it had this attention to draw people in, to learn, to be challenged, to experience the arts and culture, and then to worship different gods over and over again. You see, in Ephesus, not only do we have culture and finance, but we have so many religions. This was a very uh, polytheistic society, very much into all the different gods, famous of which in Ephesus was the mother goddess Artemis. Or if you follow Roman mythology, we'd know her as Diana. Depending on which culture you come from, you'd worship this same goddess in two different ways. But this goddess of Artemis becomes such a huge figure that she gets one of the biggest temples built in all of the ancient world here in Ephesus. It's so massive that it was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the influence of Artemis's cult within the city of Ephesus ends up having ripples that we still feel the effect of today. In fact, much of what we read in the letters of 1 Timothy and the letter to the Ephesians in our Bible is shaped because of problems that come out of people coming from this cult into the church, some as genuine believers, some trying to disrupt the church in their day. And so all this tells us that there's a lot going on. And in the midst of all this, all these different pressures and pulls and different things that could sort of take people away from God is this church, the church we know as the Church of Ephesus. And it's this church that was established by the Apostle Paul and his two friends, Priscilla and Aquila. It ends up being this uh, uh, church that sort of grows to legendary status because of its pastors. You can sort of think of it uh, in its day, it's sort of the mega church because not only did it have Paul, but then it had his protege, uh, Timothy, and then after him, 
the Apostle John who wrote Revelation and the Gospel of John and the letters of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he comes in and pastors, and as he comes in to pastor, he brings with him his best friend's mom. Her name's Mary. You might remember her from the Christmas story. Like, imagine being at the church, and the Christmas play is the nativity, and, like, there's no contest about who's playing Mary. Like, even when she got old, she's still playing Mary because, hey, this is Jesus' mom, right? Like, you got Jesus' best friend, Jesus' mom, hanging out in a church in the most influential city in the region. This place is a hub of activity. This is a place of note. This is the place we sort of want to look to, we think. Well, there is a lot of good going on. We see that Jesus actually commends some great things, right? As we follow that letter structure, we move on, and so we'll see that there's the letter to there. There's a, an emphasis on Jesus being the one who holds the seven lamp stands or stands in the middle. So he's the one who's established with all the churches centered around him. And you can explore that as you look back to, to uh, Revelation chapter 1 this week. But from there, it moves on into this place where Jesus says, you know, you guys actually are doing a lot of great things. He says this in verse 2. He says, I know your deeds. I know your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you don't tolerate wicked people and that you've tested those who have claimed to be apostles but are not, and you've found them false. Now, we don't know all that they're up to, right? This is just sort of a broad picture, but we, we can get a sense. If Jesus is saying you're doing a lot of hard work and you've got good deeds going on, we can sort of picture that this church probably had a great emphasis on reaching out into its community and caring for those in need, which was a big part of how that church was established. There's probably different programs that they had in in their own sort of sense that were to help people learn about Jesus and know what it meant to, to follow him. There's definitely this sense that that there's just this activity constantly going. And we know that as they're doing that, they're they're facing incredible persecution. I mean, Rome's in power at this time, and Caesar has declared himself to be a god. And he said, I'm fine with all the places that will worship other gods as long as they put me first. But if you don't put me first, hear this, I'm going to come after you. Well, the church of Ephesus is this standalone church in the community, surrounded by all these other temples of worship. And while they were all there, they all bowed down to Caesar as well, except for the church of Ephesus. So it had a mark on it. These are people we are against. And so you knew that the government was giving them a hard time. You knew that the other people of religions were giving them a hard time and bearing down on them. And while all of this is happening, we see that Jesus is like, you're doing great. You're persevering. You're pushing through the difficulties. You're, you're still working for me. This is awesome. Keep on going. He affirms them beyond this. They're sticking to sort of orthodox teaching. They're trusting the things that should be taught 
and said. We see that they get in these different debates and not only here in in these verses, but later on in verse 6, it says, you hate the practices of uh, the Nicolaitans. And so there's this group that we don't know much about from history, but they stand against who Jesus is. And, And so there's all this work to make sure that false teaching isn't creeping into the church and that we're we're standing firm on the truth and we're doing good things and 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 Jesus is like that's awesome I love that you're making sure that you're testing what they say against the scriptures I've already given you I I love the fact that you're listening and and being really specific to to measure out what they're saying against what I taught you when I was with you these are great things I love to see this activity What's the problem then? Well, the problem is that Jesus says this. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You have left your first love. You've let your love of me grow cold. Well, on the surface, this church looks great. There's ministry activity. It's growing in a city that stands against and there seems to be patience to to put up with the people who go against them while they're teaching the right things. Beneath all of that, our hearts and souls are rotting. When Jesus looks at the hustle and bustle of this city and, and hones in on this church, he doesn't just look at the great stuff that's on the surface he looks at what's within his people. And as he does that, he says, the real condition of your soul is this, that it doesn't really love me. You might look like you love me. You might do things that say, I'm doing it for you, Jesus, but really, you're not doing it with the love of me in your heart. You're not really paying attention to me as you go and do and try to be what a church is supposed to be. And this is, this is a big loss. This is a huge loss when you think about it. I mean, let's put it maybe into a little bit of context. Let's put it into just another type of relationship, a, a relationship of love. And we all have known different love relationships that have meant huge amounts to us. Often, for, for many of us, at first, uh, it, it's, you know, developmentally, our relationship with our mother or our father. For others, as we grow, it becomes a really deep relationship with that, that lifelong friend, and you love them, you do anything for them, you think about them, you care for them. For others, we have those romantic relationships, and, and those really become a, a new type of first love that we have, and, and, and we know what that looks like to be on fire. But for that to be squandered, for that to go cold, is really a sad event. You know, oftentimes, we, as we read the Bible, we read that God has given us this image of a marriage relationship. So Jesus is the groom and the church God's people are his bride. And, and so we, we can sort of understand this by thinking about a relationship uh, in a marriage. 
I mean, when I put it that way, I, I get it. I can see how this would be uh, such an up and down sort of thing and how when, it go, when love fades away, it could be a huge problem. I mean, I remember in terms of my first love romantically it was in the fall of 2007 when I began to date my wife. Uh, we began to date, and I was really infatuated with her at first, but slowly over time what began to happen was really love creeped in. By the summer of 2008, uh, we started dating in, in, the, in the winter 2007. By the summer of 2008, I had really fallen in love. I remember I, I, I was like ready to propose like three months in. Like I'm like, let's do this thing. And, and it was this this. Love that was different, it eclipsed the other loves in my, in my mind and in my sight and, and how I wanted to use my time. I mean, really, I spent every waking moment I could with her. I would, like, practically live at her parents' house every moment that I could. Thank you, guys, uh, uh, for putting up with me. And I would talk about her all the time. I mean, I would come from my house, and I'd pick her up, and I'd drive her to work, and then I'd go to work, and then I always finished before her. So I would leave her work, and I would drive to uh, her shop, and I so wanted to be with her that I would actually help work at the shop for free as those last few hours, because I just wanted to spend that time with her. When we were separated, though, I was thinking about her. Those were the days when you could talk while you drove a car on your cell phone, and that's terrible, but I would. I, dr I drove for a living, and so I'd spend hours on the phone or sending her messages, or uh, once I got a Blackberry and archaic searching online to buy her a gift, and these things felt like nothing to me. They were easy for me to do. I, I just wanted to express my love. I wanted to spend time with the one I love. And so I would put in loads and loads of effort. But what was love was never the things that I did. It wasn't buying flowers or gifts. It wasn't the phone call. It wasn't spending time at the shop, putting things away. It wasn't driving her to and from work. What love was was the disposition of my heart towards her, the way that she captivated my heart and my mind, and I wanted to grow in this relationship. Some of us have felt that, and we know that at the beginning of a relationship, it is just so wondrous, but as time goes on, sometimes those things dwindle. Sometimes we begin to just let those things fade because other things come in. And it's a real shame. These things happen all the time. It, the, that marriage sort of story mirrors our spiritual journey. For many of us, when we come to faith in Jesus, we become so passionate about him. We want to learn about him. So we read our Bibles and take whatever teaching we can. We want to spend time with him. And so we spend time praying and sing songs of worship. Or, or, or we, we journal and write things down that are reflections to him. We, 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 we get passionate and we start doing things because we believe Jesus wants us to extend his name. And so we serve, whether that's in our church or out in our community or, or we become obnoxious telling all our friends. I remember when I first came to faith as a, a sort of later elementary school after my family uh, had began going to church, I just became so passionate and, and my teachers would just call my parents and be like, you have to get them to stop. 
Like, he just can't keep talking about Jesus. He's so annoying. And so I would write projects based, you know, we had to write about in science the beginning of the earth. So I wrote this whole thing about why evolution was wrong in this sense and why we should listen to what the Bible says about this. And my teacher's like, oh, here we go again, you know. But, but we do that. We get so passionate. We get fired up. We tell our family and friends, wow, Jesus has changed me. My life's new. This is so exciting. I'm serving in my church. I'm doing that other thing. And then... I'm still doing that other thing. I'm still going to church. I don't really have energy to tell my friends. I'm a little bit too busy to read my Bible. I'll pray to him when I need him, I guess. That love grows cold, doesn't it? For many of us, we've, we've walked through this and we've had that sort of fiery sensation of what it meant to love Jesus, but slowly over time, it begins to grow cold. And that's in spite of the fact that we may still be doing things for him. We might still be, be serving and giving and helping other people and doing the things that Jesus would want us to do, but we do it without any of that disposition with our heart and mind set on him. We do it without the passion of, of wanting to serve him. I mean, I know so many people, myself included, who we've got so busy doing church that we don't have time to be with Jesus. I know there's others of us who are so invested in knowing the Bible and studying the Bible that we do everything. You, you weren't surprised when I brought up the structure of all the letters. You're like, yeah, I know the structure. But I, but I didn't have time when I was reading it and studying it to really think about what the Holy Spirit was saying to me through it. There's many of us, and this is particularly a, a deep challenge in a, in, a, in a church and faith tradition like ours where we get so passionate about defending what we think is right teaching that we stop spending time with the truth of God, who is Jesus. We stop listening to him because we become so diligent about defending what we think we already know. And this is something that slowly creeps in. For most of us, this was never our intention to get to a place where our heart has grown cold. You know, as I, I, I made this here, and I don't know how well you can see it, but there's a heart within this block of ice, and I think it's just such a, a good picture to represent what takes place. Because ice builds very slowly, doesn't it? I mean, when I put this in and the little baking tray into the freezer, what happened is slowly after a few hours, there became just a little bit of ice on the surface, there was still the heart moving in the water below. There was still the ability to have a little activity as I pulled out the freezer drawer for, for things to happen. But slowly as the, the ice grew colder, it began to penetrate deeper and deeper within. A slow process which has now made the heart separate from everything outside of it. 
It's encapsulated here in the coldness, struggling to break free again. And what's interesting, and I found this fascinating as I, as I looked into trying to figure out how do I freeze a heart within a block of ice so that other people could see it, there was this problem that came up time and time again. Even if I were to have used distilled water, something that we could use medically in many places, something that would be considered something that was healthy and safe, as you freeze it, the impurities become evident. These are the impurities that obscure our heart to the surface. That's why we don't see it so cleanly. Isn't that true how that happens within us? The impurities of our heart and our lives become clearer. They begin to put a barrier that's deeper and deeper from others being able to see in despite the fact that maybe we're doing great things and good things that Jesus would commend. The reason those things continue to be present, the reason those things continue to obscure, the reason that this has all happened is because our love has grown cold. Jesus warns us that this is not without consequence. He also is encouraging as we'll see in a second, that if we go the other direction, there's a promise to be obtained. The question then, though, is, where are you? It's a question I have as I've studied this this week. Where am I? God, I might be a pastor. I might show up to work. I might meet with people. I might pray. I might prep sermons. I might do outreach stuff, I might have conversations with non-Christians, but but Lord, am I doing that with my heart on fire or is my love for you grown cold? In the midst of all that, am I putting you first? Am I giving you the priority of my time and attention? Take a moment, ask yourself this. Left my first love with him. Has your love for Jesus grown cold? Maybe you're really busy doing things for Jesus, but you're not spending time with him. Maybe you're doing a great job helping other people to understand the right doctrines or you're fighting with those who are, who are clashing against the things that we should believe in. That's good, but are you listening to the Holy Spirit? Now, I hope some of us are saying no. But if you're not, it's not a great place to be, but it's okay. Jesus gives us something next. He gives us a call to respond to. He says, I know that this has happened. It's okay. I forgive you. I've already gone to the cross for you. I have more in store for you. I'm building towards victory ultimately one day. But in the meantime, if your love's grown cold, I want you to respond in this. And Jesus gives us three ways to respond to him, sort of a three-step process if our hearts grown cold. 
And the first is just this, recognize your condition. None of us like coming to a place where, where we recognize that our hearts grown cold. I, I, I mean, I work with a lot of couples who are going through marital things, and, and the least favorite part of all the marriage counseling I do is getting people to recognize where they're at as we begin. But unless we can recognize where we're at, we don't know where to move forward to. And so if you're sitting in a place today, it's, it's okay to say my heart's grown cold, but it's not okay to stay there. Jesus says, consider how far you've fallen. Okay, Lord, where was I? What did it look like when my heart was on fire for Jesus? Maybe when I first came to him. Maybe when I was baptized. Maybe when I was at summer camp. Maybe when I had this experience of sharing Jesus with someone and they got it and it changed their lives. It could be all over the place. But think of that moment and then consider where you are and just consider that chasm. Jesus says, recognize your condition and then repent. Jesus says, repent and do the things you did at first. The word repent really just means to stop and turn around. It's this word that, that we've hijacked religiously and sometimes weaponized, but really what it is, it's a call to go in the right direction. It's to do a U-turn when we're driving down the wrong way towards our destination. We quickly get around with a sense of urgency and tenacity, and we go after the right thing. Turning back to our love of God is going to take effort. It is something that's urgent. It's going to mean rearranging priorities, which a lot of us find uncomfortable. It's going to mean that there's certain things you do that you like and some things that are good that need to be scaled back. It's going to mean loosening your grip on certain things you're so passionate about so that you have open hands to grab on to him. But as we acknowledge that our hearts have grown cool or cold towards him, we have opportunity to turn to him, to ask him for, our, for forgiveness as we would in any other relationship, and then he calls us to restart, to re-engage with him. Jesus says this, do the things you did at first. Like, Jesus isn't giving us some, like, super complex pathway that we have to navigate and jump to the right stone and make sure it's not the one that's going to dip us into to the river to be washed away. There's not some sort of booby trap that's going to jump out and get us if we go the wrong way and, ha-ha, you're just going to stay frozen. No, Jesus says, just go back. Go back to those things you did when your heart was on fire. That's how I have wired you. Those are the things I've given you to connect with me. It's simple. We know this oftentimes in relationships that are just our relationship with God, but with one another. I mean, this is another one of those pieces. Oftentimes, when I'm doing uh, couples counseling, I'll have people recognize where they're at in their relationship, and then I'll just say, what is the thing you used to love doing when you were dating or engaged? I remember sitting with one couple and they were like, oh, and he's a car guy, so he liked to spend time in his car. She loved to go for drives. And, and so they would go out and they would grab a burger at the drive-thru and then they'd go for long drives. And I was like, go do it again. I know other couples who, they love hiking together and being outdoors and challenging themselves. And I was like, go do it again. 
And it's amazing how often times when couples get in back into that rhythm and there's still, yeah, lots of times other things to pull out, just like our relationship with Jesus, but we begin to see movement and love come back to the surface. Well, the same thing is true with Jesus. What were the meaningful things in your walk with God when your heart was most alit towards him? For some of us, that was just opening our Bibles and learning for the first time with fresh eyes. Put away your phone. Turn off the distractions. Make the time. For some of us, it's spending time just talking to him. And we've realized, man, I, I, I can't think of the last time I talked to God except when I was like, help, I'm panicked. For others of us, it was when we actually lived the teachings of Jesus rather than spent time debating them. It's when we put into practice. For others of us, you're like me, my, my, my heart is most on fire when I'm with non-Christian people and I get to do life with them and tell them about the difference Jesus has made. Well, sometimes I lose that and I begin to get cold. But going back to that begins to bring something back to the surface. One pastor said this. He said, we should do whatever we can to restore our first love. Because without our first love, our service becomes lifeless routine. Without love, our orthodoxy becomes narrow-minded, nitpicking legalism. And without love, our hatred of other groups' practices makes us begin to hate them. These are the signs that our hearts have grown cold. Our response in the opposite direction are the things that begin to warm it up. And we have an opportunity to do these things with Jesus. And he promises us that as we begin to do this, the cold will begin to melt. We begin to overcome boredom in our service because we begin to see how Jesus is moving again. We begin to overcome legalism and we begin to learn how to love others as friends. As we do this, we're told that we begin to be able to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus says, this is the way. The way is to, follow, is to be with me and to follow me and to replicate me in all things. And for those who do, I have made a place with me in paradise. And you will receive the fullness of the promises of everything that I have said. So what are we waiting for? Are we waiting for another fight? Or another project to do? Or another thing to take up our time this week? Or are we going to spend our time diligently focused on him? As we face this challenge today, I'd love if you're taking notes or just in your head or type it in your phone, I just want you to write down the next step. What do I need to do to grow in my love of Jesus? What thing do I need to go back to again? For some of us, that thing doesn't come up immediately. Your next step is maybe I just need to think about back then whether that was last week or last year or a decade ago or longer, what was that like? 
That's my next step. I need to go back to there again and remember what it was that drew me to Jesus. For others, it's going to be a spiritual practice. We talk about spiritual disciplines all the time together as a church, and it's not because there's something magic in the spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are just a pathway that open us up to the work of the Spirit. And so for some of us, it's re-engaging in something or taking, trying something new. What do you need to return to your experience of having a fiery relationship with him? Let's consider that this week. And as we come next week and we look at the next church, let's see where we can take steps yet again. But before they do, we do that, what I'd love for us to do is I'm just going to pray a prayer of repentance. And if it's something that echoes in your heart and you just recognize that, that man, I need to come back to you, Jesus, it's, feel free to pray along with me or not. Just listen and allow it to wash over you. And then we'll turn back to worshiping him and just acknowledging our need of him once again. Let's pray. Jesus, we recognize that it is you who holds us in your hands. We thank you for your encouragement. We thank you for allowing us to serve you, for helping us to persevere, to understand the truth of everything that you have said. Yet, Jesus, you challenge us you reveal to us that for many of us, we have lost the love that we had at first. So forgive us for assuming our worship was busyness. Forgive us for taking time away from you to do other things. Forgive us for confusing activity and orthodox thinking were the same as having a heart full and on fire for you. Jesus, remind each and every one of us of what you have done on the cross. Help us be rooted and established in your love. Help us to grasp how wide, how long, how deep your love is. And help us to come back in response to you again. Holy Spirit, help return us to a place where we are on fire in our relationship with you. We look forward to seeing what that relationship could look like again. And we thank you that it can come to fruition by the power of you, Holy Spirit. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.